0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 447 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show former biochemist turned author, Rob Wolf. Now, a lesser known fact about Rob is that he was also an EMT early in his career. So we discuss a host of topics from his experience in emergency medicine, the obesity epidemic, paleo, gut biome, sleep, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories, so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Rob Wolf. Enjoy. Well, Rob, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's
1: really an honor to be here. Thank you.
0: And I have to kind of make a point of mentioning that Dr. Kirk Parsley was really one of the few figures that I heard in other people's podcasts that really started initially for his work getting me thinking about sleep deprivation, but also realizing there was a lot of great health information out there that was so pertinent to our profession that really wasn't being heard. And I know you guys are very close friends. So this has uh, been a long time coming.
1: Well, I, uh, I'm honored to help. Like uh, Bo- Clearly, he has uh, been a SEAL and then retiring and then serving that, that you know, uh, uh, the West Coast SEAL teams for almost a decade as their main you know dive physician um he has some really deep inroads in that but we did some interesting work with the reno police and fire department and have been in and around this kind of first responder scene for a long time so it's a huge honor to be here and uh, always love helping any way i can
0: beautiful well i'm very excited there's so much i want to kind of like pick your brains on but starting um chronologically tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings
1: Okay, um, I was born in Redding, California, which is uh, far northern California. We like to say it's the state of Jefferson. It, it just hasn't uh, split off from the rest of California yet, uh, and uh, kind of a kind of a small town, a cool place to to grow up. The family dynamic, I guess, was interesting. Both of my parents had been married previously and divorced, and then got married and had me. So. I had, in theory, just a, a ton of siblings, but the the closest one to me in age was ten years older. So I mean, virtually, everybody was was out of the house by the time I I really hit the scene. So I I think like kind of psychologically, I was more like a an only child than than like the the last of six or ten or you know however many it was in there. Um, my my parents. It, it, it's interesting. I don't want to divert into this too much, but I didn't learn a bunch of this until my my early twenties, but both of my parents had very, very difficult childhoods. My dad was abandoned as a child from his father. Um, his, uh, my, my grandmother on my dad's side died when she, when he was nine years old, six, six years old or nine years old. But, um, uh, my grandfather remarried, uh, he had five kids of his own. The woman he was marrying had five kids and he basically took his own children and put them in foster care and just abandoned them. And uh, as one could imagine, that had a pretty long lasting impact on them. And then I discovered some pretty, pretty terrible things that happened to my, my mother. She was um, married at age 16 and, and pregnant at age 16. And so, uh, it, you know, looking back, I think my parents did an absolutely phenomenal job. I wish I had understood their the, the path that they had to travel and kind of their origin story earlier. And I wish I had had a bit more of a empathic background at, at that point. I mean, being a knuckleheaded uh, teenage male is, is not great for that stuff. But even in my twenties, when I discovered the trials and tribulations, they had, it made a lot of sense why their, their lives were so difficult. But, um, uh, you know, they, they both smoked, my dad drank, uh, they had pretty poor health their whole life. Uh, and I suspected that there were things that one could do to really improve that scenario. And so I was always interested in nutrition, health, human performance. Um, this ultimately led me to get a, uh, an undergrad in biochemistry. And I was really looking at, at potentially medical school or possibly kind of a research kind of track. And it was around this time I was tinkering with a pretty low-fat uh, vegan-based diet. And for me, it just didn't work that well. I, I got really sick. I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing a bowel resection. Um, I, I weigh about 165, 170 pounds, pretty lean, reasonably muscular. And uh, when I had the ulcerative colitis, I got down to a low of uh, 125, 130 pounds from malabsorption. And it was kind of a a last ditch effort to to do something other than surgery to address that problem that this idea of kind of low carb ancestral type eating got on my radar and it was so powerful that I just couldn't even it, it when it, it maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm right on this, but i when this idea of ancestral health got on my radar, sleep, food, circadian biology, um, community gut microbiome and all these things being kind of woven together. When this idea got on my radar, it was so powerful. And I, I felt like it was, um, really the place that medicine needed to start it versus it being this kind of weird bastardized, uh, you know, ridiculed, um, you know, kind of, kind of sidecar. Uh, it, it, I, I just couldn't imagine going through regular medical school and spending, you know, 4, 8, 12 years learning about pathophysiology and, and, and really needing to hide this idea of ancestral health until, until you're out and done, you know. And it, it seemed like a remarkable waste of time, at least for me. And interestingly, right around this time, I was casting around online. This was around 2000, 2001, and I found this kind of weird workout called CrossFit and it, it had some pretty cool links related to paleo eating, ancestral health and whatnot. And the workout seemed kind of cool. And I I started hanging out with my friend Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. And we started working out together following the workout of the day. And within about three months, we had about 12, 15 people that we were training out of his his garage. And we reached out to the Glassmans, uh, the founders of CrossFit and we said, Hey, you know, we really like what you are doing. We want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? They were like, yeah, do it. Go, go be achieve. And, uh, that was CrossFit North, which was the first affiliate in the world. And then I ended up moving back down to Chico, California and opening CrossFit NorCal, which was the fourth affiliate in the world. And I want to say we were open for three, four years before there was even an affiliate agreement of any kind. Like it was a it was very wild west, very, very shooting from the hip, but that allowed me to get in and start working with just a, uh, a ton of people from a, a wide variety of of backgrounds, and you know not just applying the, the movement side of this, but really the diet and lifestyle and circadian biology and all the rest of that, and I guess that led to a couple of New York Times best selling books and and uh, you know ultimately doing doing some pretty cool work working with the Naval Special Warfare. Resiliency program where I would speak to the SEAL teams, the special the special boat teams, and also the families of these these folks, and uh, you know a good number of other uh, kind of inroads within the first responder scene.
0: Beautiful. Well, going right back to your parents because this this is something that I've had my eyes open to since I started this podcast. I got about four hundred and forty-ish episodes out there now, and This, you know, childhood story initially was just a a good way of, you know, sticking a timeline to a person's uh, story and then kind of working our way through. What ended up, you know, being very obvious was how much trauma there was in so many people's lives. Um, there's a book written by a guy called Johan Hari where he really opened my eyes to the impact of mental health on. For example, obesity for obviously addiction and smoking and other other things that are killing, you know, our men and women in genocidal numbers. So with this journey now, I'd love to go back, you know, chronologically and, and revisit some other things. But with this journey you're on now, you know, we talk a lot about diet choices and exercise choices. But how much have you seen actual mental health factor into overall physical ill health?
1: Oh gosh, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll just take it, a, uh, I uh, I, guess a note from myself, which, um, I've intermittently suffered some pretty crippling, uh, depressive episodes. Um, I, I, definitely nutrition is a big factor in it. Um, my light exposure is a huge factor. Like when it was, and this is, this is where, um, when I, when I was really sick, uh, and looking back, every single thing you could think of was kind of wrong for, for me, for my physiology. I was living in Seattle. Um, I was in a basement apartment that had a tiny window that looked out on a North facing <laughs> exposure, you know, and, and, uh, what, what tiny, uh, paltry amounts of light would, would be around was, was, uh, pretty diffuse. I was in a graduate program and I, I really thought that, you know, sleep was for the week and, and, you know, you sleep when you're dead. So I was getting maybe four hours of sleep a night. I was eating a diet that was not remotely congruent with, with the way my physiology works best, particularly under those circumstances. And, uh, I, I suffered just nearly crippling, uh, depression, anxiety, like a constant fixation on death. And, Uh, I've cycled in and out of that over time and stress levels are a big factor because my nutrition is pretty, pretty consistently buttoned up. Like it'll vary a little bit, but I'm, I'm very gluten intolerant. I'm not very carb tolerant. And so I've just kind of figured out the lane lines that work well for me. And then beyond that, it's, it's kind of like my work life, uh, kind of balance, like, am I taking enough downtime? Um, Also, am I doing work that I really have a sense of task completion? Uh, That's been really interesting for me. Uh, And it's tough in this kind of online world where the things that I'm called upon to do answer a lot of emails, answer a lot of questions online. Um, That's that's cool, but it also just feels like shuffling piles of sand from one pile to another. Like, I have absolutely no sense of task completion on that type of stuff. Like somebody might pay me and they'll say, well, that, that advice you gave me was great. It was on point. Um, and, and that's good. I feel good in the moment, but compared to building something compared to even like cleaning the garage where there's this sense of here's a beginning, here's a mid part, here's an end. A lot of the work that I, I find myself doing is, uh, it's really cool. I'm very fortunate, but it's very difficult to get a sense of task completion around it. And ironically, um, I I think when you dig into depression, one of the most powerful things that is recommended that folks do is just start making a list of shit that you need to do. It's like bathe, change your clothes, do some laundry. And like you make a list and you tick that stuff off. Like, there's this really interesting kind of dopamine cycle with um, a sense of task completion and accomplishment. And I think for a lot of people in that first responder scene, they end up in kind of a similar scenario in which every day ends up being a little bit like Groundhog's Day. It's like you helped and saved and battled and fought for a bunch of people yesterday and you do this same fucking thing again today, you know, and it, it's like... It, you, you could change the names, change the faces, and it's all the same stuff. And, um, I don't know if I'm getting too far out in the weeds, but definitely for myself, you know, diet, exercise, circadian rhythm, all that type of stuff is really important. But that, um, that say se- sense of closure around task completion, I've found to be one of the most, uh, dramatic and important features of my, my mental health that, that there is, you know, and it, I, I think it's built upon having all those other kind of You know, molecular underpinnings and and whatnot um, kind of buttoned up. But it's also interesting that modern living, um, it's oftentimes hard to get a sense of task completion. And I, I think that that's a major challenge for people to to overcome.
0: it's a very interesting perspective, especially through the first responder lens. And I know you were an EMT as well, so you understand it. Um, But I talk about this with the physical side. So, you know, you have a collegiate athlete, a professional athlete. You know, they have their off-season, their on-season, they're ramping up towards competition. Whereas we need to basically be, you know, game ready for 10, 20, 30 years. And then right. with the calls, like you said, I mean, there's, sometimes there's not closure on an actual call. We don't know if that person lived or died when we took them to the hospital, but it is, it's, it's this kind of hamster wheel of, of never ending work and whether it's the calls that we respond to or, you know, some of the busy work that's thrown our way. So that does make a lot of sense.
1: And, and I think you see a lot of people in the first responder scene, um, they usually adopt uh, hobbies that have very distinct task completion potential, like they get into archery and they they build, you know, they fletch their arrows, or they get into woodwork or metalwork, or uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I I have noticed, and again, this may be some kind of confirmation bias. I may only be seeing it where I want to to see it, but I I have noticed that folks in Situ, you know, jobs like like this where there isn't always like like for somebody that builds houses or like an engineer, they develop design and build a bridge like there's the, the pre contemplative part and then you start thinking about it and you you design it and you tweak it and fiddle it and then the thing gets built and then it's done and then you move on. And I, I think that there's a, a really profound sense of accomplishment around that. And again, this closure and task completion and uh, I, I noticed that folks in the first responder scene, like they seem to gravitate towards these a- a- a leisure activities that, that seem to have a high degree of kind of task completion element to it. Like you, 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 you built that table or, <laughs> you know, you, you reloaded this many uh, rounds of ammo or, you know, whatever it is that you were doing. But it, it, it is very kind of quantifiable, unlike the day to day job.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, a lot of good, my good friends have gone into archery and use that as an example. So and then jujitsu, which I know you do, is one of my big things to give me just something else to train for now.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And jujitsu is interesting in that it's um it's pretty open-ended. There's not an end to it. So it, it as, as I was talking about the task completion thing, I was like, Man, how does jujitsu enter into that? But I, I think it, it, if anything else, what it what it does is it um it really allows one a moment to be safely 100 percent in the moment and and uh, kind of that flow flow state for sure, I, I think, is a, a major draw for the the jujitsu. Absolutely.
0: Well, going back to your early life. So what kind of sports were you playing in school age?
1: School age? You know, it's funny. Um, I had horrifically nearsightedness, like I almost had surgery as a kid on my left eye. And so, uh, baseball, I sucked at basketball. I, I, I was marginally better. Um, but I got into wrestling and like football and, and things that, um, kind of very poor eyesight were not as big of a deal. And like in football I was a lineman. And so I I just had to like try to bludgeon people with my head and that was, that was good and grappling, you know, similar, similar deals. So uh, I, it, it's funny, um, I had a stint doing some, some, we tie some Thai boxing and I was okay at it, but I had a uh, LASIK surgery in my mid to late thirties. And I really haven't done much Thai boxing in, in ages. I did that in my, my early twenties, but, um, I did a little bit of work with some folks after, after getting the, the surgery. And I was like, Oh my God, even when I was Thai boxing, like it's not that much of a distance, but, um, my eyesight was so bad, I couldn't, couldn't really see stuff all that well. I was like, man, I might have actually been halfway decent at this if I could see things. But I, I the only kind of team sport that I really did was uh, football, um, didn't really do soccer, didn't do baseball. Um, it, it was kind of grappling. And then I, I got into weightlifting. I actually had a pretty good youth sports injury. I had a bruised spine and a whiplash uh, in my let's see here, right before freshman year of high school. So I was probably like 13 right around there. It was pretty, pretty bad injury. And I started lifting weights after that to kind of rehab. And I really enjoyed that. Um, I had the good fortune of meeting two um, world champion powerlifters and they were outstanding uh, uh, athletes and coaches. and, And they kind of took me under their wing and I ended up competing in uh, powerlifting at the at the youth level and won the California State Powerlifting Championship when I was 19. So I guess uh, grappling, a little bit of martial arts and powerlifting were kind of the main things that I, I gravitated into from a sports perspective.
0: Beautiful. It's funny you say that. I was actually very, very nearsighted in my right eye and I had Lasix in my 30, 30s as well. So I can relate completely it was uh i mean eye opening sounds a little cliche of a description, but <laughs> but yeah, I could shoot with the correct eye now, which was uh game changing
1: nice, nice, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> so with your career path, you know you mentioned that you were you know wanting to do medicine. how did the the track to EMT
1: factor on that journey you know this was quite far ahead of me even having a notion of, of potentially, you know, standard medical school. So I was down in Southern California and, um, I'm not entirely sure what directed me down that path. Uh, I, I think I've always had a a sense of enjoying helping people. Like I, it's funny, I was thinking about this yesterday. Like I, I think I just get a little bit of a dopamine hit from, from helping folks, you know, being of service and whatnot. And uh, I I was in Long Beach, California, and I I think I saw an ad at the the college, the university about, you know, becoming EMT and you could make some pretty good money while you were going to school. And so I just kind of got into that, that that process did the EMT program and then ran a, a, as we called it, a gut bucket for, you know, what, I don't know, probably 18 months, 24 months before I ended up moving up to Chico, California. And it, interestingly, once I moved up to Chico, um, although I had this EMT credential, um, the, there's so fewer. People up there that uh, I I would have needed to kill someone to get into, you you know, running on a on an ambulance or something up there was a very deep uh, applicant pool in there, whereas in L.A. it was kind of constantly hiring. But it it really the it's funny now that I think back about all of this, um, it was the process of becoming an EMT, kind of seeing what goes on at that first interface, the handoff of people going into the hospital and the emergency room and whatnot—that I, I think actually lit an in interest in medicine at, on a larger, you know, scale for me. Like I, I, I don't know that it was ever really on my radar. I always suspected I would be involved in some sort of science or engineering or something like that. But the specifics of medicine, I think, were now that I think back about it, were probably an outgrowth of of doing that EMT process.
0: Well, an interesting perspective, I actually wrote a book last year and in and, you know, one of the chapters is about obesity. We as EMTs, medics, you know, firefighters, we get to really peel, pull the curtain back on the nation's true health, not the way that we're portrayed, but the actual health and so you know as I got deeper in my career and started getting more into the the wellness space and I you know got my ex fears at u f and all these you know academic side, I also kind of realized, hey, you know there's these people that that we do full you know cardiac arrest code on that still die in their forties in their fifties that have this you know trash bag size bag full of meds. And none of them worked, you know. And then, so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I've had a pretty good grasp of, of understanding that nutrition is how we, you know, prevent and reverse disease. But that was really a, a perspective that a lot of people don't have. And so I wanted to write the book to educate not only our professions, but also the public. Like, hey, this is this is what we're actually seeing in the ERs, on the streets versus what you're being told by drug commercials and that kind of thing. How much did your time as an EMT factor into that kind of aha moment that you had later in your life?
1: One aha moment was the um, implications of traumatic brain injury. So uh, we, we, I remember one call really distinctly. A uh, guy crashed his car. He wasn't even going that fast, but he was moving along pretty well. Uh, but somehow, and I, I don't know how this happened, but he, he was the driver and he ended up going through the windshield. I, I, I don't know how this guy like supermanned around his steering wheel, but he, he basically just went headfirst through it, through the, the, you know, the, uh, front windshield. It was very much as if he had been the passenger, but he was the only person in the car. He was the driver um and we we brought him in and uh, you know they were they were doing a uh uh eeg kind of looking at his at his brain and and there was no ct scan yet or anything like this was very early on but i i asked the neurologist that was there i'm like when when does all that normalize and he's like oh that doesn't i'm like really and he's like well think about this uh, imagine a very beautiful complex crystal chandelier falling from about you know, three meters up and hitting a concrete floor. I was like, oh, and he's like, you could, you could scratch together pieces of that and spackle it together. Um, but it's never going to be the same, right? Like it's just, even if you got every little, little grain of, of crystal material and put it back in there, it's just not really going to be the same. I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I get that. And um, that really stuck with me. That was actually why I quit doing tie boxing because I was, Two, two reasons. Um, I was only marginally good at it. I was more of a catcher's mitt than a, a baseball bat. And, <laughs> you when, and it really, <laughs> it, it, when it really struck me, I was like, oh, the brain isn't really well suited to be sloshed around inside the skull, uh, you know, vigorously and, and multiple times throughout one's lifetime and all this type of stuff. I was like, okay, I, I, I really get that. And uh, I have done a, a fair amount of work in and around the first responder scene, like we, I did a, a talk around TBI and ketogenic diets, maybe 2012, and that that thing has had a, a non-trivial uh, impact in in people seeking out uh, treatment, combining ketogenic diets with, say, like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and and whatnot. So. Um, out of anything that I saw, it was that, that, that one person that ejected through the front windshield and, you know, pretty, pretty significant traumatic brain injury in this doctor taking a moment to, to explain this stuff to me, you know, instead of just being kind of a prick and like, well, he's fucked, you know, and, and calling it good. But he really, in a simple, um, accurate, elegant way, explain kind of what, what this guy faced, you know, the, the analogy of dropping a. A crystal chandelier onto a concrete floor, and, and it, it it had an impact on me for sure. You know, so it modified my behavior immediately, and uh, it, it it was something that I've always kind of kept my i eyes and ears open to because I had a, definitely a, a pretty profound personal interest in in that topic.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. It's it's understanding the why is so powerful to shape behavioral change, and you mentioned the TBI. I, one of the things I talk about. A lot, because there's a reason you know <laughs> to get this this message home is the insanity of of um drug prohibition, and you know especially when you're talking about some of the powerful um therapeutic meds whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, and one thing I hear over and over again is how psilocybin is doing a great job with um some of the t b i s and some of our members of military, but they have to go overseas to get that treatment, which is crazy,
1: yeah, it's um it, it's funny. I'm, I'm pretty libertarian, I guess, in my politics. I've, I've, uh, always been perplexed about the way that the drug war has, has rolled out and and whatnot. And it, it's interesting because I, I have lots of, you know, police that are, are my pals and they oftentimes look askance <laughs> at some of my positions, but it, it seems like the, the, brokenness of that system is finally starting to get some cracks in it. And, uh, you know, there seems to be a bit of a watershed moment for looking at things like ketamine, psilocybin. I, I saw an article on, uh, uh LSD the, the other day, um, looking at it in as a adjunctive therapeutic for other kind of, um, Again, cognitive behavioral therapy and some other interventions. So I, I, I think we, we missed a huge opportunity to really dig into that stuff as a, a therapeutic. Like there was basically a 50-year window where that stuff was largely taken off, the, off the, the table. But it looks like we're kind of revisiting all that now. And I, I think right in time, too
0: absolutely well you mentioned your health issues i'd love just to kind of you walk me through your own personal journey and then we'll start unpacking some of the you know the the principles that you talk about these days
1: yeah i mean i i would say that i i guess my my personal issues are man how would i definitely gut related but the gut being somewhat like systemic inflammatory related like i think at one time i was heading down the road to rheumatoid arthritis like I actually had some kind of morphological changes in my hand one hand one foot and you know all the the kind of signs and symptoms around that I definitely have celiac disease like my mother died from celiac disease complications so there's definitely that kind of gut autoimmune side to this story <clears throat> and then did the, I'm um, I'm not that carb tolerant, like I've, I've donated blood to reduce my iron levels. I work out, I'm reasonably lean, like I've done everything that say like the evidence based medicine or nutrition folks would suggest one do to improve carb tolerance. And I'm, I'm just not that carb tolerant. My wife and I, when I wrote my second book, Wired to Eat, we did these side by side comparisons where she would eat 50 grams of effective carbs from white rice. I would do the same. I'm 30 or 40 pounds heavier than she is. But her maximum blood glucose level would hit maybe like 115, 120 at two hours. Mine was like 190, like I was in diabetic blood glucose range. And this is something we've just always kind of known. You know, I would I generally eat low carb, but every once in a while I will be out at Mexican food and I'll try having some rice or I'll do some beans or like I would do some lentils or what have you. And. I can have a little bit. I just can't have a lot. Like I, I just can't don't tolerate that as kind of like my my primary energy source. And I've done a little bit of genetic testing and it suggests that, yeah, you probably are, are better at fat mobilization than you are at at metabolizing carbs. But I also super, super uh, very suspicious of most of that that information. But I guess I would boil most of my stuff down to either kind of gut slash um, autoimmune considerations and then glycemic load. And interestingly, I I think that that ends up being the story for everybody. Uh, Some people are really, really good at carb metabolism and they do wonderfully on an adequate protein, low fat, high carb diet. Looks like kind of a classic bodybuilder diet, ideally built around like whole Largely unprocessed foods and then some people do pretty well on a mix they're kind of like a zone ratio 30 30 30 type thing and they do pretty well with that and other folks are kind of like me where they um, they really seem to benefit from some significant carbohydrate restriction in general or at least some partitioning like maybe the you know they do some more carbs but it's peri workout like immediately before immediately after something like that. And then the final piece to that, I think, is is just keeping a little bit of an eye on uh, immunogenic foods. Like some people are really reactive to gluten. Some people don't do well with eggs. Other people have problems with soy. And it it really varies from person to person. But I've kind of boiled my nutritional approach down to get adequate protein and adequate protein is somewhere between a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. And you can eat more if you want to, but that's a pretty good bracket. And then figure out if you run better on carbs or fat or a combo, and then just have a little bit of an eye open towards immunogenic foods. Like maybe the joint inflammation you have is from dairy or wheat or, or something. And that's where a basic elimination diet that is really easy to do by following kind of a paleo template or something like that. I, I've found that to be a really simple, uh, kind of buy-in for folks and also incredibly powerful in that it, And that there's little details that you can start getting into, but it's, um, it's so simple and so effective that it's really hard to get people fired up about looking at it. You know, it's like, now nah, there's, there's gotta be something more to this versus this kind of like, Three-step, you know, tiered process.
0: Yeah, one of my my least favorite phrases is "Oh, but it's complicated." Most right. most and times it, when they say that, it's absolutely not complicated.
1: <laughs> and it is complicated on the like nutri, you know, on the nutritional physiology side, on the circadian biology, all that stuff is complicated. But you can't answer that complexity with complexity of behavior. The only way you address that is with simple heuristic interventions. And and this is where, uh, you know, from person to person, there will be some tweaks and some fiddles. But uh, Nassim Talib has talked about this, where you, you, if you have an incredibly complex environment you're trying to interface with, you have to address it with simplicity, actually, because you will be ground under in the complexity rather quickly. So you have to find the really big, uh, usually it's kind of, you know, maximum impact type things like sleep or food or, you know, what what have you. So I, I think it is worthwhile to acknowledge that these things are complex, but we immediately have to answer that with simplicity, not complexity. This is where like the first answer to um, diet and lifestyle intervention is not genetic testing. It's not a, a 50 vial blood draw to figure out all your lipid markers and whatnot. Establishing a baseline is fine. Like that's, that's totally legit. But, um, you know, if you are sleeping four hours a night and you're eating terribly and half your calories are in liquid carbohydrate form, like there is so much low hanging fruit there. We don't need any like wearables or, you know anything like that to be able to make some massive improvements on that thing, and somewhere down the road, we could, if we want to dig in a little deeper, we can certainly do that. But there, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in in that scenario, um, well before getting geeked out on wearables or testing or whatnot.
0: Yeah, no, I agree completely. And an uh, analogy is is what we talked about: illicit drugs. You know, if you want to fight the war on drugs by putting more police on the streets, and you know, just I mean, all the the ripple effect of that. Then that's complicated. The simplistic approach is to stop putting power in the hands of scumbags and you know, putting addicts in prison. If you address the nucleus of that problem, all those complex ripple issues that we see are ultimately gonna self
1: resolve. Yeah. Yeah. And man, that gives people a rash because they don't feel like they're doing anything. But this is (laughs) this is that reality. You know, Uh, there's a really interesting book called The Cathedral and the Bazaar. And it's about Linux and open source software. And really only the first chapter is is super germane to most of this stuff. But the guy draws the parallel between a cathedral, which is um, both of them are built by humans but the cathedral has this really powerful central planning. It, it's very scripted. Uh, it has utility and benefit, but this—it's it, much more like a, uh, you know, an off-the-shelf Microsoft product or something. It's like what you get is what you get. It's all planned. Um, there's not much dynamism to it. In a bazaar, a market is built by humans. It's interfaced by humans, but there's not like a central governing force to it that, you know, it's people are there. There's, there's maybe some rough rules and guidelines, but it's a very, very different experience. This open source kind of idea. And, um, man, people who love power and love control just get a rash when you start, suggesting open source, decentralized, uh, solutions to this stuff because they're, they're like, well, we don't know what people are doing. And it's like, no, we don't. Maybe that's good. And so long as they're not doing things that are like blowing up buildings and shit like that, then maybe we don't need to be su- super concerned about it, you know? And, and, uh, but it's a, it's an interesting book. And I, I think that, uh, even that first chapter is available online if people want to check it out, but it's an interesting, um, I think it even mentions the drug war to some degree in this thing about like a, a centralized solution versus a decentralized solution. And it, it's funny how you will see people's head just kind of like spin off their shoulders when you start recommending these these decentralized solutions because they don't they don't have a sense of power or control around it.
0: Absolutely. And I will noticed with the law enforcement. It's not so much that they're, you know, getting the rash from what you just described. It's just that they've been told their whole career to enforce these laws, so right, there's that feeling right. of well, what the hell was I doing the last you know 20 years? Then, if you're going to tell me now this isn't, so I understand their their yeah, kind of need to it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about um, you know your own personal kind of um, phenotype genotype, and I think that's one of the powerful messages. It's, it's literally the first chapter in Wired to Eat, but it's something I talk about as well. So, I think one of the big mistakes we make with Especially you and I, when we were younger, the way we were told, this is how you should eat, this is how you should exercise, it has that, you know, one size fits all mentality, which I think is complete bullshit. So, from your, you know, through your eyes, without wearing wearables and doing 50 vials of blood, you know, just kind of w- explain to me kind of the, the diversity of the human being and, and you know, um, the um the concept that, yes... One diet maybe or one nutritional style may be g- great for one person, but it doesn't mean it 's going to fit perfectly for someone else
1: yeah, you know maybe we 'll start with the nutrition part um, i do now there will be variation on it some some people will how do I want to tackle this um, I think now I could be wrong, but I think that when we think when we consider um, lean body mass, preventing sarcopenia. So like if you're in your twenties and you're jacked and, you know, hard charger, whatever this isn't of concern, I'm almost 50. And I'm, that means I'm 20 years down range of, of when biology has been saying, Hey, you don't need so much uh, muscle mass. anymore." (laughs) So like I, I have to fight and scrap to, to hang on to every bit that I have. But interestingly, if I do some smart nutrition, some smart strength training, um, I can maintain the vast majority of that and in theory it won't be until about my eighties, late seventies, early eighties that we really see the, the wheels fall off the wagon on, you know, muscle mass and power production. Like there's kind of a steady downward trend, but so long as I exercise, so long as I eat adequate protein, I'm, I'm pretty good there And that. Adequate protein I think is maybe the, the linchpin to most of nutrition. Uh, you know, for the vast majority of people, overeating is the main problem. And and some people in the low carb camp will say, oh, it's all carbohydrate. And then people in the vegan camp will say, no, it's all fat. And I think it's both. You know, when you look at what people are overeating, uh, they're not overeating pearled barley. They're also not overeating chicken breast or, or even steak. It, it's pizza and ice cream and Little Debbie snack cakes. It's highly processed foods that are both fat and carb combos and, and, or things like just liquid carbohydrate and in the form of like soda and juice and stuff like that. So all of that stuff, like, I I think we can kind of boil, um, the, the greatest benefit in nutrition to just getting adequate protein for you individually. And again, people will, piss and moan and whine about this. Some people say we need very, very little. Other people say we need much more. I'm on the more side. Like, it, and particularly if uh, somebody's struggling with weight loss or, or weight maintenance, um, protein tends to be the most satiating food that we can consume. And uh, there there's good evolutionary biology to support this, like uh, optimum foraging strategy and the protein leverage hypothesis. They really make a case for a protein adequate diet to, to normalize our, our appetite. And then again, from there, we think about like glycemic load, uh, types of carbs. And that ticks both, uh, you know, phenotypically, do you do well with carbs? Yes or no. Um, do you have some other immunogenic problems like, like gluten or, or dairy or what have you? There's a lot more to nutrition than that, but I think that that at at a really surface level that that covers a ton of that. And then, you know, I think that sleep and circadian biology are probably even more important than that. But it's uh, especially in this first responder scene, it's really hard to get buy in on that. Like people know they feel like shit when they don't sleep, but there's kind of that wearing the badge of honor, like, yeah, I'm hard, I'm tough. Um, I, I can still get my, I've got what it takes even when I'm sleep deprived and that's really laudable. But when you when you look at, it, it's now understood like the World Health Organization, CDC, although the, those guys are, are jokers in, in some areas, but um, they recognize shift work as a known carcinogen. Like it's understood that it, it increases cancer rates in a similar fashion as smoking asbestos and a bunch, you know, in, in nuclear radiation. So getting that buttoned up to the best of one's ability is, is critical. Um, That community and support is, is another major piece. And it's, uh, it's really tough within first responder communities because I think, and this happens a lot regardless of what folks do. Like if you're an, an, uh, a Wall Street financial trader, who are you most likely to hang out with? Probably Wall Street financial traders. Like, it, it, you know, you just – that's your proximity. That's kind of your wheelhouse. You might have a few people that are kind of peripheral to that. But, you know, first responders tend to hang out with first responders and their families. And I think that that's good in in some ways because everybody kind of gets one another. It can be challenging in some ways, too, because um, you're just always stewing and cooking in that environment. But it's so um, I'm not sure where the, the, the right or wrong plays out with that. I, I think just trying to find people that are, are as stable and as balanced and, and you know, as, as with it as possible is is critical because that, that peer group can go a long ways towards your, the rest of your health and whatnot. Uh, and I, I don't know, I'm probably probably forgetting some other stuff, but I, I feel like those are, are biggies, you know, definitely things that, that everybody should be looking at, whether they're a first responder or not. But particularly within that first responder world, I, I, you know, that kind of simplistic nutrition approach, having a very keen eye towards circadian rhythm and biology and by hook or by crook, if you got to work a shitty uh, uh, shift. All the rest of your life needs to be more buttoned up and on point. The sleep that you do get needs to be protected at gunpoint, you know, and and uh, and then that community uh, support element is really important. And I, I don't have super deep insights on that. You know, it can be j- just being on shift work makes that community part really challenging. Like the times that everybody else is awake, you are supposed to be asleep or you stay awake so that you can hang out with your kids at, at a non um, vampire hour of the day, and then you've been awake for 36 or 48 hours straight, which is is terrible. And I, I think that this is something that going forward, we as a society um, really need to recognize that if we're going to ask this of our first responders, um, we need to really take care of them commensurate to that because it, it, is, uh, it is taking from them in a disproportionate way for sure.
0: Absolutely. Well, one of the things I talk about is their, their work week and I'm, I'm retired now. So I'm, you know, two years deep in, in the career transition during this full time. So I got to sleep again. I got, you know, back in my bed and I've seen the healing of my body, of my mind. Um, but the 56 hour work weeks, which are kind of average, I would say the federal do a little bit more. People that have a Kelly day do a little bit less, but. You know, there's this argument or no, this argument, this push like, oh, we've got to stop cancer by cleaning our gear and, oh, you know, mental health, suicide its because of what we see. It's like, no, one of the elephants in the room is sleep deprivation. And if we can create shifts like the Northeast does where it's 24-72, uh, so it's a 42-hour work week, that in itself would have a huge impact on on the injury rate, obesity rate, the cancer, the mental health, all those issues.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, even in, it, so more in like the hospital setting, um, I, I am so stupefied that, that like I get the time and a half stuff and everything and people can make a lot of money there and whatnot. But once you've been on shift for like a really human being, So if we're being really honest, if you're really running and gunning, um, after about four to six hours, you're a piece of shit. Like you really are. And people will like push back on that, but like there've been all kinds of Cognitive tests done where they they test people's reaction times and decision making and everything and after about six hours things really go on a steep downward slide a- after that 10 to 12 hour point one is as as physically and cognitively impaired as if you were a point one alcohol blood alcohol content and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But yet we have these perverse incentives where, hey, if you stay for a second shift and uh, maybe even a third shift, we're going to pay you even more money. And I, I again, I know people will want to murder me. They're like, well, this is how I'm sending my kid to school, doing all this stuff. And like, I I get it, but also, um, the errors, the the impact on on folks individually, like it it just goes up exponentially. It's like a bomb going off, and I I don't. I understand that there are are all kinds of complexities and concerns around that. Just the thing is, is that I think that that is a super perverse incentive to um, pay people double or time and a half or whatever it is for being on a second or third shift when they are for all all intents and purposes, like whatever isn't in their brainstem and 100 percent automatic, they're probably going to screw it up. And, and I, I, so yeah, people can, are probably going to hate me for that, but I, I feel pretty strongly on it.
0: No, trust me. You're just, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Cause I've brought, I mean, Kirk's been on four times, so that, that should tell you something, <laughs> how yeah. much I'm trying to deliver that message, but it's, it's, you know, it's something that has to be changed. And the sad thing is it's that short sighted, you know, kind of, um, job justification, uh, fiscal year mentality. Well, Instead of understanding, well, if we invest money and and create, you know, more staffing, therefore giving our men and women more time off between each shift that we've asked them to stay up an entire twenty five twenty four hour period, that's going to save hand over fist down the road with the mistakes that we potentially were going to make with the the medical, you know, retirements and the the uh, injuries and all these things, but it's 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 that short-sighted mentality same as again we're talking about the drug thing you know we know it's an epic failure so we need someone that has the balls to say all right enough is enough we're going to start investing in our people so every time they report to duty in their in a police car in their fire engine their ambulance they are as close to reset as we can get them
1: yeah and and you know so we're right now in the uh you know like the Derek Chauvin uh, a trial deal, I'm not sure when this thing's going to go up, but like, you know, holy smokes, how much, um, you know, pain and misery came from, you know, arguably a probably a pretty poor decision overall. And I don't know if this has been vetted out, but uh, there have been studies looking at excessive force within uh, policing specifically. Something like 93% of excessive force uh, situations occur immediately on the heels Of a shift change, of the individual change having a significant change in their circadian biology and their circadian rhythm. And I know if I if I just have like a a super bad night of sleep, like we we moved to Montana and and there's all kinds of critters around, and like there were a couple of nights there where our our dog would hear something, and he's he's this Rhodesian Ridgeback. He doesn't bark often, but when he does, it sounds like a goddamn bomb exploding. You know, I'm like, oh god, what's happening? And so it wakes me up, and and then the next day I am a raging asshole relative to what I am normally. Now I'm kind of a prick on most days, but like I'm pretty amicable with my kids and long fuse and all that. But on those days where I'm really sleep deprived, it, it's a it's a rough deal to keep my shit together. And this is a a really big deal. Something like ninety three percent of excessive force case it, it, c- scenarios appear to occur within a 24-hour period of a significant shift change. What the fuck could we learn from that? Like what should – maybe – and correlation doesn't always mean causation. Maybe there's not something there. But God, it sure makes a lot of sense. And and wouldn't that be – Something And again, this is um, maybe when somebody does a shift change, maybe they're on light duty the first 24 hours or something until their body starts acclimating or maybe they've got more coverage and support. And this all necessitates more money in policing, not fucking less like that. that it, it, that's not going to fix anything. Like just imagine all of the, the gnarly scenarios that have occurred due to um, excessive force and, you know, situations. And and how much of that could we cut that in half? Could we cut it by 90 percent by just having some smarter transitions between, you know, shift changes and whatnot? Maybe, maybe not. But goddamn, let's look at that. Like, let's investigate that. Let's tinker with that. Because even if there's a 10 percent change, that's probably worth it. You know, when we consider all the, you know, loss of life and property and, and social cohesion and whatnot, like that could be huge.
0: Yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent. And I use, you know, law enforcement as an example. You think about a lot of the, the line of duty deaths, you know, whether it's a, an engine or a police car that they have that intersection wreck and they hit, you know, the mm-hmm. minivan full of kids. And then you have, you know, the teenager reaching for their driver's license and, and he gets shot. You know, we're asking people to make, you know, fraction of a second decisions, many of whom are completely sleep deprived. Then you layer on, maybe that department doesn't take training seriously. So that brain stem we're leaning on. That reflexive action, you know, that bar is set very low. And then again, you okay, now let's reverse engineer from the other side. Well, how do we lower crime in the first place? Well, maybe if we stop, <laughs> you know, making addiction illegal and empowering shitbags to sell dope on the side of the street and murder each other in gangs, maybe that would then allow more police, you know, in that department to ride two to a car and, you know, you know what I mean? So, again, mm-hmm. it's not complicated, but you have to reverse engineer to the root. It is not normal, like you said, for a human being to be awake after the sun goes down or, you know, soon after the sun goes down. So the moment that we created, you know, the, the light bulb and shift work, as you again talk about in your book, we started working against our biology. And I see and I point about this a lot, a drill school full of extremely healthy, fit men and women training to be a firefighter, training to be a police officer. Fast forward 10 years. What do those men and women look like? it's not a lack of desire to stay healthy and then ownership. You know, there's some of us that manage to stay very healthy our whole career, but I think that's despite the environment, not because of the environment.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Well, with the, the food quality is another thing I'd love to pick your brains on. So you know, we have obviously the the highly refined processed stuff, and it's, it's funny because you hear, you know, vegans and carnivores and these like knockout drag out fights, and I'm standing there a lot of times going, well, look, you both agree on the middle part: no processed food, more vegetables. You know, I mean, that's. But we have an issue as well with the quality of some of our food: vegetables sprayed with all you know all kinds of chemicals, and you know, animals exposed to horrific conditions, pumped full of hormones and antibiotics. So what has been your experience what, with basically the cleanliness of our food and, and seeking out you know the 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 food that will be most nutritious to the human
1: body Man I'm I you know for ethical considerations I think that like pastured meat and and uh you know all, all of that uh there's economic and ethical reasons to support that like you're not supporting like the the th- there are only 6 companies that that produce something like 95% of the food consumed globally and they're they're not <laughs> they're not wonderful people you know and and so if you if you have the money and you have the wherewithal to support a local farmer or rancher or CSA or something like that i think it's wonderful to do that but then i also see people particularly in this ancestral health space there's one prominent individual. I, I, fuck, I'll just mention like Dave Asprey, um, bulletproof exec. When he was talking about this, he basically said it's grass fed or nothing. And then somebody said, "Well, what about a family living at the margins and they they just can't afford grass fed meat?" And he's like, "Well, they should just fast more often." And it's like, what a fucking asshole, <laughs> you know? And and <laughs> how how disconnected can you be? It's kind of like let them eat cake for fuck's sakes. You know, it's like, give me a break. So, um, I'm actually, um, I think I horrify a lot of the folks that follow me. I think that probably 80% of the people that follow me are much more stringent on this type of stuff than I am. Um, if you need to run into a Seven Eleven. and buy five hot dogs and ditch the buns and just eat the meat and that's, and then you get a, a bag of uh, salted almonds and and you get a, uh, uh, a no carb uh, electrolyte drink to, to wash it down. You grab it out of the cold case. That is way better than, than donuts and a sugary beverage. Like it just is like the, the metabolic consequences there. And people will be like nitrates and nitrites and this and that. And I'm like, let's hook this let's not do a bunch of goofy epidemiological studies let's just follow this person over a month of eating more like that versus like sugary beverage a donut a sandwich you know a, a refined carbs etc so um i think that the you know the pesticide residue on on um you know produce pretty far down the list uh for Adults for kids, maybe we pay a little bit more attention to it. Like these uh, endocrine disruptors can be a a legit thing. So like if you're feeding your kids strawberries, fucking pony up for the organic ones, maybe or at least wash them really well and stuff like that. Like there's some reasonable things there. But uh, in my first book, I had these two things. It was hippie excuse for failure, part one and part two. Um, I can't find grass-fed meat, so I'll eat a bagel. That's hippie excuse for failure, part one. Part two is I can't find organic produce, so I'll eat a bagel. It, it, it's, I, I see that stuff pretty far down the list. Like, Get that adequate protein. Make sure your glycemic load is appropriate to what your situation is. If you're a first responder, then chances are, you, you unless you scored some like super sweet gig, you're probably on some sort of uh, shift work. Once you're in shift work, you are are insulin insensitive, uh, at at least transiently. And during those, those sleep deprived periods, I think a low carb diet is like a wonderful way of mitigating the, the downside damage on, on that whole scenario. And again, if it's like you run into a Seven Eleven or, or similar and, uh, but like, you know, just standard fast food, like order four or five hamburger patties, hold the bun, get extra tomatoes, Done. Like, you, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And if you want a soda, just fucking please get a diet soda. Like it's it, it, it is that difficult, in my opinion. And the results that we've seen steering people more that way versus no, just try to moderate your food intake. You're asking people who are are running a gun and gunning, high work output and they're in this this circadian disordered environment where we know that they're they're craving for sugar, their insulin sensitivity is is just really really deranged and and the last kind of lever that you have to to control that stuff to some degree is carbohydrate management. So a, a simple thing to do is like again, some sort of a sandwich or hamburger without the bun or bread or maybe take one one half of it off. And then whatever beverages you have, uh, get an unsweetened iced tea and put some, some stevia or, or, you know, some, uh, sucralose or whatever in it. Like I'm, I'm so, uh, unimpressed with the, the deleterious effects of like artificial sweeteners versus high fructose corn syrup concerned, consumed in hundred calorie aliquots like that. I know for a fact that's bad for people. The the artificial sweeteners and just like super unimpressed with the the downsides of that.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's that's great advice. And sadly, you know, a lot of our men and women are exposed to first use. You know, they're, they're responding areas where there just isn't a lot. So, you know, for someone who's just trying to make those first steps, I think that's that's some great advice. On the macro level, how do we, uh, you know, push? push what seems to already be happening in my opinion but keep pushing um that needle to where we are subsidizing local food more we're we're not subsidizing the processed shit and we're we're making it where when people walk into the the 7-eleven they actually have a lot more you know quality food and versus you know as as you said there's kind of like a in some areas there's there's a class system where and i always get this oh it's expensive to eat well well there's whole foods well i'm very lucky i live in rural florida where we have local farms and farmers markets where it's just as cheap to eat healthily here once you actually understand what you're looking for so as a nation how do we keep moving that bar to make the healthier choices the norm the cheaper version
1: Uh, I'm going to answer this uh, maybe going the opposite direction, which is um, the direction that we are headed currently is more and more consolidation in our food systems and more globalization of our food systems. Like uh, Bill Gates saying that all meat should be replaced by lab meat, uh, even though he happens to have become the largest owner of farmland in the United States. And lo and behold, all the things that he produces would be the products that go into producing lab grown meat, ironically. And so I'm going to answer this the flip side. I think that we need to vigorously, violently push back against the globalization of our food systems. And ironically, the developing world may be the, the beachhead against this because they can't afford to do all this bullshit. They can't print money the way that the United States does and do all this ridiculous um, stuff with both their their food and their economy. They have to actually live within their means. <laughs> and and um, so this is something that I would throw out to people is, is be really looking at the ways that we're being told That a more globalized food system, uh, a more centrally controlled food system, which ironically really feeds into this kind of vegan centric kind of food model. Uh, Forbes had a fascinating piece that was talking about all the the uh, fake meat, uh, vegan backed stuff is is really just um, playing beautifully to uh, big corporations. And ironically, the people who generally kind of politically identify with more that progressive vegan scene. I, I thought usually they hated big corporations, but yet they're advocating for a food system that is monolithically going to be big corporations. So that I, I would answer it more that direction. Like we need, more decentralization in our food. Uh, we need to not be taking our, our marching orders from like the World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum on the ways that we should be producing and and incentivizing uh, uh, food production. And and it's interesting. There are a few places like Utah and a few other uh, places in the United States that are starting to look at their food security. Like they're looking downrange at. What if there was an EMP pulse? What if there was this major disruption to supply chains? Like how independent could we be in our own food production? And most places are not very independent. Like Nevada produces less than 2% of all of its food locally and, and, you're never probably going to fix that 100%. But if we just had a bit more decentralization uh, and and this is where like it, at some point government needs to come in and start breaking up these monolithic entities and do some of the antitrust stuff to restart the engines of competition, then I, I think that that would be – that is ultimately the way that this stuff is going to circle back around. And I, I think more to the question that you asked, if we vote with our dollars for these uh, more – local, decentralized options, then um, even the bigger players will pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, I think that's... I mean, I've used that phrase a lot. There's a um, an agri they call it, a housing community that's built around a farm. Um, and I had one of the founders on the show. It's in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And when COVID hit, they were fine. They had a farm. Yeah. They fed all their people, you know, when everyone else was, was lining up outside the grocery stores. And I think that's it, you know. I mean, the fact that we ship you know, food that is not even of good quality in the first place and picked before it's ripe and that kind of thing and we ship it thousands of miles to states that are actually perfectly apt of, you know, apt of growing that same food themselves or, you know, like eating seasonally and not having strawberries 365 days a year. That seems to be exactly what everyone did 100 years ago. So we're not even reinventing the wheel. We're just undoing the damage of industrialized farming.
1: Right. Totally agree. Yeah.
0: Well, one more thing I want to touch on. And obviously, again, this is kind of related to, to the quality of the food. Um, one of the most, I think, less known, um, you know, facts is that the gut is 80% of our immune system. You mentioned about your, you know, um, gut issues and that, that causing or or at least being partly causal to, um, your autoimmune disease. So talk to me just in general about, um, you know gut biome and again how our nutritional choices can can hurt or help that element of our human body
1: oh man that's a good one to wrap up on but it's uh your, your question is going to be a lot better than my answer um it, it's interesting because being in this ancestral health i guess kind of paleo diet world um 15 years ago we were saying gut health is really really important for a whole host of things intestinal barrier function the gut microbiome and people would say, no, it's not. It, that, that's ridiculous. Show me your randomized control trial. And then time has happened. And then it's like, oh, no, it is actually super important. It, uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's may begin in the gut. Um, cardiovascular disease could potentially be viewed as a, a gut related um, immune process. You know, the way that the LDL particles, uh, uh, you know, interface in this whole thing. So it ended up being this incredibly important thing. And then we started seeing some, some stuff like uh, U-Biome, which if people have been following the news, that's this outfit that was claiming to look at your your poop sample and they were going to sequence it and tell you uh, what was good and what was bad about it and how to eat optimally for it. And almost all of that ended up just being bullshit. Um, it, something we started discovering is that your gut microbiome changes constantly if you watch a sad movie it changes if you watch a happy movie it changes if you if you catch a, a cold it changes and so folks started taking snapshots they started taking a picture of what is a four-dimensional movie it's it's three dimensions happening in time you know and and trying to make a, a, a really uh both broad-reaching but also pinpoint recommendations oh you need these bacteria and these bacteria what we know for sure is that a healthy gut clinically is important. Like you don't want to be constipated, you also don't want to have disaster pants. Like there's some middle ground there where like your stools are well formed and you, you know, you maybe go on some consistent cadence. But what's interesting there is that some people have a very healthy gut with a lot of fiber. Some people have a a terrible gut. Like I it took me ages to figure out that poorly cooked vegetables or like green salads are just ruin me like they absolutely ruin me and over the course of time i've eaten ever closer to kind of carnivore i do meat and some dairy and a little bit of fruit and i i do really really well with that and it's not what i chose to do i'm not doing it to to like gain followers or or to create a a meat-centric cult it's just kind of where i've I've arrived at with this stuff. But what's really interesting is clinically, we've seen people go 100% vegan, super high fiber, high fermentable fiber, and their digestion and health improves. And we've seen people go absolutely zero fiber, animal products only, and their gut health and their overall health improves. And, And so, I think that where we are right now, it, and I, it, it may be this way forever, there, there may be a point where we can look at our genetics or epigenetics, the gut microbiome and have some machine learning that can get out ahead of, of all of that complexity and provide some really pinpoint recommendations. But I really think that the rubber hits the road at the clinical manifestations. Like if you have gas and bloating and you're miserable and we have some other symptoms like foggy headedness or, or, you know, kind of neurological symptoms or what have you, then we probably want to do some tinkering with your gut. And we can start first with more fermentable fiber and see if that improves things. We could maybe put some probiotics in the mix. And if that makes things worse, then maybe we go the exact opposite direction. And I, I honestly think that that is the height of, um, gut health understanding right now. And I, I see people going on and on about, Oh, well, this acromancia this, and you know, intestinal barrier that, and it's all interesting. But then from a clinical perspective, I I love Parsley in, in that people will ask him, Hey, should I get this test? And he's like, how is it going to influence what you do? And they're like, I have no idea. Then he's like, then you have no business getting that test. You know, if it, it, it just, it's just bullshit then, you know, it's just adding to the information overload. And so similarly, if, um, you know, I think that we have these two ends of a spectrum, which is that uh, amount and type of fiber may be beneficial or detrimental for folks. And we just kind of play with that. And even in the research around uh, probiotics about 50% of people get better and about 50% of people either either have no change or get worse. So it, it's really this big toss up in that regard. And I do think under ideal human standards, like, a, you know, free living humans, we should kind of have the digestion of like almost a trash compactor. Like we should be able to manage just about anything and and be pretty robust and metabolically flexible. But I was on antibiotics from the age of 13 to 21 for acne and, and I don't know how many rounds of other antibiotics I've been on over the years for sinus infections, strep throat and what, what have you and I just don't know if, if like I've done so much trauma to my digestive tract that I'm just left with kind of carnivore and that's the only spot that I can really find decent health and decent digestion.
0: Yeah. Well, I think again, another through line that's really come out of this conversation and something I agree with too is, is just basically self experimentation. I mean, I think a clear middle ground is highly processed, refined carbs, you know, are definitely, you know, a, a, a demon or, or, you know, a, an obvious first go to to improve your health. But after that, working out which, which kind of eating philosophy works for you. It's just like you said, you get bloated. You get the shits. You get blocked up. You know, do you yep. feel like your joints are aching? Are you always tired? Do you have brain fog? So, you know, understanding the, the real go-to easy fixes and then as you kind of navigate that path and then figure out. I know when I went plant-based for a while, my digest—excuse me, my digestive system felt amazing. But then after a mm. while, I felt mm-hmm. like my energy started dropping. So, you know, it was, this, okay, so obviously more vegetables are definitely a thing for me personally, but then- and I put some meat in if I eat too much meat, then you know my my digest just my digestive system feels like it starts to suffer again. So hmm. there's also that constant kind of you know undulating experience. some days are you can tolerate things, some days you can't. but listening to your body, I think is so important,
1: yeah and and you know within this first responder community, it's um. It's an it's a non-trivial thing for anybody to do that, but you know, for folks that are putting everybody else first ahead of themselves, and then paying attention to well, where my shit's good or not. Like it's sometimes a big ask, but the the return on that focus and being a little bit selfish about your own health it, it, it's really important. It's super important for folks.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. But before we do, talk to me about your new LMNT salt. Because, again, hydration is something that, you know, we don't think about. I'm here in Florida, where we sweat profusely as soon as we get out of the shower. You know, now we throw on fire gear and, you know, that doesn't offset heat. So, um, you know, you have the the really crappy, quote unquote, energy drinks, and then you have, you know, the the straight water. Um, tell me about your salt and, and what's different about that and some of the other products that we see out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, Element uh, was really the thing that fixed my performance as it relates to kind of low carb fueling of things like jujitsu and more. Glycolytic activity, and it, it was uh, it was interesting. I I started working with a couple of guys that just work with tens of thousands of people uh, doing uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of Keto Gains, Like they they just have this massive community, a couple hundred thousand people that they coach uh, through boot camps using a an appropriate protein uh, low carb diet and. The sodium piece is just this non-negotiable feature, and it's it's interesting. We, we have associated sodium with all the deleterious characteristics of processed food. And in general, in the, the modern diet, this is where people generally get the bulk of their sodium. When somebody switches to like a paleo diet or low carb or even vegan or, or what have you, like usually the sodium drops out because we're not really eating a bunch of processed food. And ironically, when, when people make the shift, usually there's, there's a period of time where they're like lightheaded, lethargic. Um, they get a lot of cramping and people start looking at potassium and magnesium as the solutions. And ironically, the sodium is really the, the solution. And it's, it's, uh, I, I don't have a, a ton of time to flesh this out a, a mountain, but when you dig into the, the literature on this stuff, it is literally impossible to find an example of, pe- of anyone willingly dying from dehydration. Like if, so, if somebody dies from dehydration, it's because they got lost in the desert. They got trapped in a, a cave in or something like that. Um, if people have access to any amount of liquids, they will consume liquid at some point. Like They, they just like they won't hunger strike their, their way through that thing interestingly the the medical literature is thick with examples of people over consuming water absent adequate electrolytes specifically sodium ending ending up in a hyponatremic state and in either being hospitalized or dying and so it's it's a uh, it's an interesting thing that uh, the margin for error of too much sodium is far far more forgiving than too little sodium and the way that we ended up putting Element together, we we looked at two or three hundred uh, diets of folks. They were tracking it in chronometer and we looked at the protein, carbs, fat. But then we also looked at kind of the micronutrients, the sodium, potassium, magnesium and calcium. And really the way that we formulated Element was to supplement what we would otherwise get from a whole food based diet. And it's maybe worth mentioning when, when Gatorade first hit the scene ages ago, we had somebody go to the uh, Florida state, you know, Gatorade museum where, where this was all, all hatched ages ago. And originally, uh, a, a serving of Gatorade used to provide a gram of sodium. And over time that sodium amount has decreased while the sugar amount has (laughs) increased. So we, you know, there is some very good science there, but it's gotten lost, um, in the shuffle due to the, the, uh, unfortunate kind of demonization of of sodium because of its relationship to uh, blood pressure and cardiovascular disease and whatnot, and that largely is driven again by a, a highly processed diet and overeating and ending up in a hyperinsulinemic state. And so, if somebody's eating garbage and they're hyperinsulinemic and they're they're hypertensive, they don't need something like element. Like they they're already retaining plenty of water and sodium, but you clean up your diet a little bit and it doesn't matter whether you go low carb or just more kind of Mediterranean or what have you, people typically benefit significantly from upping their, their sodium intake. And it's worth mentioning even within the very mainstream kind of missionary style stuff, uh, American council of sports medicine, their guidelines for athletes training in hot or humid environments is north of seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. And when we've talked to some folks that like uh, in the NHL where they've, they, uh, I guess NFL would be similar, but NHL, you you think about these guys being on the ice, you'd figure it's cold, but the amount of gear they wear is very, very hot. And uh, some of these guys will lose more than 10 pounds of water in a, in a a game or a, a practice session. And associated with that water is upwards of 10 grams of sodium in a session. Now, you apply this to firefighters and they're like in a wildland fire scenario where the sun's beating down on them and they have all this gear on. It's at least as significant as that and possibly even more. And people are not replenishing at that level. And this is uh, some of the, the the main problems. that uh, two, two things end up occurring in this scenario. Person ends up hyponatremic, they're low sodium and they start getting dizzy and foggy headed. They actually get brain swelling. They become lethargic. Uh, they, they can't think properly and then they will consume water and this can kill people because it actually makes the situation worse. In that scenario, they have to hydrate, but hydration in a textbook of medical physiology means water and electrolytes. And, and this is something that we're just battling, tooth and nail to, to get awareness around it. And it's also, I think part of the reason why, um, if element like we, we, uh, we gave out a bunch of element at the beginning of COVID for our our folks on the front line. And we, we did that because we heard of people going down due to heat exhaustion, you know, wearing PPE and different things like that. And it honestly became one of the best marketing things we ever did. And we didn't have this intention, but if people just tried it, they were like, Oh my God, this thing's a lifesaver, you know? And, and, uh, if you don't want to do element, then do like chicken bouillon or si- find something that's got adequate sodium in it. And it, it, it's way more than what folks really think it 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 should be.
0: Absolutely. Well, it was funny because I graduated from the University of Florida. So Gatorade came from my school and yeah. that was always shipped out to us in rehab. And I've always disliked it. It's always been you know way too sugary. I never felt replenished after I used to cut it half and half just to make it even tolerable. So, yep. you know, when I think about some of the longer structure fires I've been on, you know, I mean, we forget wildland, just structure alone. You, you lose so much fluid and, you know, we, we sit down, we rehab, we cool down, then we have to go back in again. So understanding, you know, the, the right type of hydration fluid for our men and women. And plus the fact that, you know, what, what you guys have is a sachet. So you don't have to have, you know, shelves full of bottles. You can have just a water cooler, you know, and then, just pouring that in and that gives everyone, you know, the the electrolytes that they need. So it's right. something that I've seen firsthand myself, not only in the gym, but also, you know, on the fire ground. And as you mentioned, now take wildland firefighters well, they can have some sachets in their their pocket and then put it into their canteen and there they have that too. So I think it's a great alternative to, as you mentioned, what once was a good sports drink, but now has definitely devolved to more like a, a soda.
1: Well, and you know, it's funny since we launched, um, Gatorade is has launched a new product that has a lot more sodium in it. So we're we're uh, we're changing things on on that that realm. Uh, the the science is pretty clear on it. Uh, people will piss and moan and wring their hands and and whatnot, but the the science on sodium is is pretty pretty darn good it just doesn't fit the narrative that we've kind of assumed around it and uh you know where have we heard that before like saturated fat and cholesterol and a host of different things but yeah yeah
0: beautiful well for people listening where can they find element salt
1: uh drink element.com is is where uh, you you can track that down um we have some cool like free plus shipping options that I think are still going, but it, you know, for like five bucks in the United States, they can, they can order uh, a one stick pack of all of our flavors and it gets sent out to them. I'm not sure how much longer that thing's going to be going on, but we have a hundred percent money back guarantee. If you don't like it, uh, we'll we'll refund your money. But it, you know, so far that has worked really Really, really well for folks. So, drinkelement.com, and we are are kind of redoing the website, but we have a massive amount of information over there on our blog. I, I write there. A number of our other founders write on the blog, uh, and then within our expanded community police, military, fire, um, professional athletes. Like we're, we're really getting a pretty deep bench of people so that if you're wondering, would this be right for my situation? Um, there, there's probably somebody like you there that you can wrap with and, and kind of bounce some ideas around.
0: Beautiful. And where can people find, um, your podcast, your blog and the books?
1: uh my my main website is robwolf.com and uh my you can find the podcast and also the Healthy Rebellion the name of our podcast that I do with my wife is called the Healthy Rebellion Radio and then we have a online community same name the Healthy Rebellion our goal is to liberate a million people out of the sick care system via that process and uh yeah we have a ton of fun over there and it was a a lifesaver during covid to have a community where people could share ideas and support each other and not be subjected to the algorithms of the the you know facebook and twitter and all that type of stuff so that's been really cool
0: beautiful well rob i just want to say thank you so much um you know you're a wealth of information there's such a beautiful crossover between you know a lot of things that kirk has talked about but obviously the the nutritional side too and yeah, you know, the more the more people like you that come on here and, and share their information the more of an immersive project this becomes the more people can find their own unique path so thank you for being so generous with your time today
1: hey thank you and thanks for accommodating the schedule i know we bounced around a little bit pinning this thing down so thank you